0: This is the Pain Information Network, special edition. Welcome back, everybody. I'm going to do a special edition today. I'm going to do it because I've gotten a lot of interest in this new thing called the CDC Guidelines, that's a Centers for Disease Control, Guidelines on Opioids. Their core recommendations, and physicians and providers alike are not only a little confused, but they're concerned exactly how these are going to affect their practice, and they should be because these guidelines are somewhat flawed. I can truly embrace a few of them and understand, and I can understand the story behind these guidelines. I know why they're making these guidelines. I get it. We have an opioid epidemic problem. There's a lot of abuse, misuse, and diversion, and these guidelines help practitioners with common-sense approaches to maybe move their practice to a better risk-reward benefit. In other words, less risk to the patient, less risk to the community, less risk from a regulatory standpoint. But once again, these are guidelines. So what do guidelines mean? Guidelines are signposts. They're direction posts. They help us understand where we may want to be, not necessarily a standard, where you are told how to practice by standard of care within the medical community. A standard of care in the medical community is very different than a guideline. A guideline is a representation of some thought, best thought, hopefully best thought. It usually has some methodology behind it. It usually has somebody or an entity or a specialty organization standing behind it with some pretty solid evidence. And... I'm going to be going through some of that as I think we'll be breaking this one up. I'm going to go through opioid guidelines uh, that I have been involved with in the American Society of Interventional Pain Physician arena. And I'm going to also go through the CDC guidelines. That's a pretty big talk. So we are probably going to look at this as a two or three podcast chunk. But I, I really want to start with the Basics of the CDC guidelines. And I'm going to go through the basic 12. I will probably come back and revisit this as I understand them more, as there's a lot of information to go through. This is a a fairly complex document. It's also put together by folks that I wouldn't consider the Marines. The front-end people or the prescribers of most notability, the people that I would say were on the front lines writing these meds or else involved in application of these medications to clinical practice from a research and development side, from a best outcome side. And we'll, we'll touch on that. So let's get to these. All right, number one. CDC opioid guideline number one. These are bullet points. Non-pharmacologic therapy and non-opioid pharmacologic therapy are preferred for chronic pain. Okay. We don't really have a comment on that. Non-pharmacologic therapy is good. And is it preferred for chronic pain? I don't know. What does preferred mean? Preferred for somebody on a regulatory agency, somebody that we will call a patient, Somebody in a medical office that has the tip of the pen writing the prescription. And who says it's preferred? Let's, let's get a little more specific. Chronic pain is something that affects millions of people. Is it preferred that we don't write opioids and use non-narcotic medication alternatives for a particular reason? What are those reasons? Where's the evidence? Opioid therapy should be considered only if expected benefits for both pain and function Outweigh risk to the patient. Well, I guess I would say we are always talking about the risk-award benefit. Nothing new here. We'll let that stand uh, as a a comment that I think is pretty self-evident. Number two, before starting opioid therapy for chronic pain, establish treatment goals, including realistic goals for pain and function. Okay, I get that. We've talked about that as benchmarks, three, six, nine, and 12 months. They don't say that, but why don't we say that? So are you getting to your goals? And they're realistic goals. And I agree that those 10 items on the refrigerator that you're calling your pain-to-do bucket list, you're checking them off, I can walk a quarter of a mile three times a week. I couldn't do that before. I can sit longer, take less medicine. I can go to the grocery store. Realistic goals. Okay. We're checking those off at benchmarks. If we aren't hitting those benchmarks, why aren't we? Providers should not initiate opioid therapy without consideration of how therapy will be discontinued if unsuccessful. I don't know how we can do that. If there's some guidance on that, I would like to know it, but I don't have a crystal ball why should we not initiate opioid therapy if legitimate need is there? And yeah, we might have an exit strategy. I can clearly understand that. But do we do that on every diagnosis? What if the diagnosis is cancer? I don't think I'm going to impose an exit strategy. I'm going to give them what they need. And I'm going to give it for the right reasons. Another might be, Yeah, acute pain, bone break, bone hurt. There might be an exit strategy there, sure. But when we have something like post laminectomy syndrome or failed back surgery syndrome (FBSS), I don't know where they're going to go. They come to me after many failed therapies and many failed options, and quite frankly, a failed surgery. So where am I going to have them? Well, we're going to use benchmarks. I've talked about that. So. I don't know how I'm going to consider something's going to be discontinued without knowing the natural history of what's moving forward. I got to get to know the patient. All right. Providers should continue opioid therapy only if there is clinically meaningful improvement in pain and function that outweighs risk to patient safety. Well, should is a big word. Providers should. That pushes. A standard, doesn't it? Not necessarily a guideline. Providers should. So clinically meaningful improvement. You've said should and clinically meaningful improvement in the same sentence. What is clinically meaningful improvement? And should we take into characteristics of the type of patient and diagnosis? Yeah, we should. It outweighs risk to patient safety. I, I think that's self-evident. Any physician that's prescribing anything, it might be a blood pressure medicine, that doesn't take into account risk-reward for patient safety. Well, maybe they shouldn't be practicing. So, yes. But a, a, a questionably flawed statement here that I, with years of experience, can see kind of a yin and yang. Number three, before starting and periodically during opioid therapy, providers should discuss with patients known risks and realistic benefits of opioid therapy. Well, this has kind of been stated before. We discuss with patients our risk complications and options. We sometimes get informed consent, and it's a whole other discussion. Realistic benefits of opioid therapy. Well, there are realistic benefits like pain control, but the benefit is not always self-evident. People don't always realize the benefit of opioid therapy because it's not always in their face. The benefit is they may feel better, better endurance, better quality of life indices. These sometimes have to be monitored and discussed within the course of care over time. They're defined as you move forward. They aren't always clinically evident. They have to sometimes find their own way and their own piece of the statement that the return visit allows us to understand. The statements might be, yeah, I'm sleeping better. I'm waking up with less aches and pains. I am doing what I like to do with my grandchildren. Things like that are are realistic, but the known risks I've discussed with the patient, uh, yes, we've done that, but what are those risks? If it's an incredibly opioid-naive individual, they've never seen opioids, that's a whole set of risks than... I can define on an individual who has a previous history of substance abuse. Those are completely different ends of a large spectrum. All right. Patient and provider responsibilities for managing therapy should be discussed. There's that should word again. And so we, we do this. Um, floor. When starting opioid therapy for chronic pain, Providers should, see, there's should again, prescribe immediate-release opioids instead of extended-release long-acting opioids. So here's a principle that is clear to me and clear to people that really know opioids and speak and talk on opioids and write on opioids. There is no clinically discernible difference between extended-release and immediate-release Opioids within the context of outcome. So, to make a blanket statement like this is hard to swallow because chronic pain is chronic and acute pain is acute, but acute pain can be chronic and chronic pain can be acute. And so, we have sometimes people that can be on extended release opioids and Uh, have no necessity to be on immediate release opioids to control symptoms that are intermittent, expected, or pretty well controlled. And starting opioid therapy for chronic pain is not necessarily going to need one pill a day, two pill a day, three, four pill a day. It's going to be individualized. So this Guideline number four uh, probably is going nowhere. Five. When opioids are started, providers should, there's that word, prescribe the lowest effective dosage. I'm not going to argue on that one. Use caution when prescribing opioids at any dosage. We keep seeing this cautionary tale keep coming up. This is the one. Implement additional precautions when increasing dosage to greater than or equal 15 morphine milligram equivalents per day and should generally avoid increasing dosage to greater than 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day. What did I just say? What did they just say? Well, 15 morphine milligram equivalents means the gold standard morphine as considered 1 over 1 we look at potency we look at potency of opioids uh, based on the morphine equivalent where morphine is 1 so if something is 4 times as potent as morphine it's 4 times morphine equivalent so you start getting into these numbers and you are eliminating some very important principles. One of those principles is we don't all metabolize drugs the same. We're all snowflakes. We're all differently. We do know through genetic testing that some people have rapid metabolism, some have intermediate, and some have slow metabolism. We know and can can identify these people. It's important sometimes to do that. For example, Northern Europeans, between five and ten percent of those folks have a poor metabolic pathway through a genetic reason for, say, for example, hydrocodone. It uses a 2D6 pathway uh, predominant. And, well, if that 2D6 pathway is defective or whatever pathway is defective, they're not going to get that drug metabolized. And what's important in hydrocodone is we know it's metabolized to hydromorphone, which in the morphine equivalence is pretty potent. And so if you can't get it to the active drug or significantly proportionate active drug, such as the hydromorphone and hydrocodone, you can't get it to metabolize to its active agent, then it probably doesn't work very well. So what we know is there's a genetic issue here that has to be addressed with everybody that is on a controlled substance, particularly some with unique characteristics. Oxycodone's another, and don't get me started on methadone. If you're on methadone, take a big, deep breath. Go talk to your, your physician about getting off that drug into something else. Okay, so 50 morphine milligram equivalents. That's not a lot, and avoid increasing 90 morphine milligram equivalents a day. I do understand the SAMHSA data and some of the other data that we can see a fairly parallel and linear progression to morbidity and mortality, and there can be an increased risk above 90 morphine milligram equivalents, but it's arbitrary, and it's not representing the close eye of a well-trained individual or a, a good physician in general who is observing an individual taking these medications appropriately and has not shown any evidence of misuse, abuse, or diversion and putting a number and slapping it down there as a guideline. And I can see where they're going with this. Don't give me a number like this. I need to have a little bit more leeway Uh, for the individualization of my care, particularly those that are very tolerant to medications. This is going to be a speed bump. Six. Long-term opioid use begins with treatment of acute pain. Not necessarily. Acute pain happens chronically, and chronic pain happens acutely. So not all people have acute pain. Some people develop a problem from... Another issue, suppose it's a tumor. That's not an acute pain issue. And some people have migraine headaches and they've had them for life. That's not an acute pain issue, but it's recurrent. So we have to get a little more sophisticated in our comments when we're making statements like this. Providers should prescribe the lowest effective dose of immediate release opioids and should prescribe no greater quantity... Than needed for the expected duration of severe pain enough to require opioids. This is repetitive. Three or fewer days usually will be sufficient for most non traumatic pain not related to major surgery. Who says three days? I watched the Today Show last week and they had Dr. Oz on and he's talking about he's splitting the chest and dramatically describing using a saw and this sort of stuff and he doesn't keep people on for more than three days. Come on. Come on that's an arbitrary number. I don't know where that number came from or how they determined that number. Help me understand that number. What he described was major surgery and traumatic surgery. So it's kind of a contradiction. So I can tell you there are many, many diagnosis and disease states that three days is it's just not going to cut it. I would say that there are people that Use medications PRN. I would say that's fairly common, as needed. But putting it on three days, what if they need it four days, five days, six days? Are we outside a standard? This guideline doesn't make sense. Seven, evaluate benefits and harms with patients within one to four weeks of starting opioid therapy for chronic pain or of dose escalation. Okay, I, I, I guess we can do that. Evaluate benefit and harm. HARMS of continued therapy every three months or more frequently. Now, you, you do that on every visit. Uh, HARMS is a is a technical term where you look at the risk of these medicines as the a risk-reward benefit in your favor. That's basically what they're saying. Now, you do it on every visit. The CDC guidelines have been telling us to do it on every uh, visit, and, as we've elaborated earlier. If benefits do not outweigh harms of continued opioid therapy, work with patients to reduce the opioid dosage and to discontinue opioids. What if they really hurt? What if legitimate need is really there? And, yeah, they, yeah, they may get a little sketchy or may have issues, but as we say in chronic pain management, most patients do not have a level course. Don't even imply that they have a level course. Sometimes they have life stressors, there's mitigating events, or the disease state progresses, or something along these lines. We just don't reduce dosage. Sometimes that's not good medicine, or it's it's sometimes inhumane. Eight, before starting and periodically during continuation of opioid therapy, evaluate risk factors for opium-related harms. Okay, well, we've said something earlier about that. This is uh, redundant. Incorporate strategies to mitigate risk, including considering offering naloxone when factors that increase risk of opioid overdose, such as history of overdose, history of substance use disorder, or higher opioid doses, and they put down 50 morphine milligram equivalents. That's not very high, are present. Well... Well, I, I guess I don't really have a problem with this. Sam should suggest that naloxone be available to certain people. But let, let's let's get down to common sense, practicality. The tip of the provider's pen is attached to the hand that's attached to the arm that goes to the brain and the prefrontal cortex. All those years of training have told you if that little voice on your shoulder says the risk-reward benefit does not match the need to give an opioid. So – we're giving naloxone, or a reversal agent, of opioids to people that might be opioid-dependent, and they may need that drug or not need that drug, and it's given to you, and you throw them in a withdrawal. Okay, put that aside. Okay, just put that theoretical issue aside. The other thing is if you're if you're not skilled enough to realize that certain people should not have these opioids and are at risk for overdose – Get them to somebody that can handle them. Sometimes it's a specially trained addictionologist. That's me, for example. We'd have much more frequent visits. Uh, We would have an adherence monitoring program that would be robust. We would be following them very carefully. Or switch them to something that's very low risk for overdose. So this naloxone question, big question mark, about somebody giving somebody a bunch of opioids – When they have an increased risk for opioid overdose and history of overdose, come on, you should know that and you should respond accordingly medically, not necessarily chemically. Review the patient's history of controlled substance prescriptions, this is number nine, using the state prescription drug monitoring program. Get that, I completely agree with that. Um, And review this data when starting opioid therapy for chronic pain and they say every three months Well, do it every month. Do it every week if you need to. It it should be individualized. Ten. When prescribing opioids for chronic pain, use urine drug testing before starting opioid therapy. I don't think that's medically necessary all the time. Urine drug testing is something that we can use. Yes, it's a tool. It helps us understand not only the drug that's there or the drug that's not there or the metabolites. And they put down before starting opioid therapy? Not necessarily. Let's take, for example, that Lollip, that little old lady in pain. Very low risk of misuse, abuse, or divorce. Very low risk. You've done a good history and physical. you evaluated her, and do we want to throw a $1,000 drug test at her? Not, no. Let's just let's just kind of pick the patient, and if we need to do it, we'll do it. And they say consider testing at least annually. Um, well, do it whenever you need to do it. When there are red flags, test. And that's safe prescribing habitry. This one I agree with, 11. Providers should avoid prescribing opioid pain medications for patients whenever they're receiving benzodiazepines. That's like Xanax, Klonopin, those sort of things. Um, Adivan. And I agree with that. I have a saying that you're driving down the road, the person on your left and the person on your right is on a benzodiazepine. They're almost ubiquitous in American medicine, and they shouldn't be. Benzodiazepines are a fairly risky item when utilizing opioid therapy. We know that uh, benzodiazepines are usually seen together with opioids in overdoses and many of the deaths. Benzodiazepines were developed. To have a safer alternative to barbiturates in the 60s and 70s, Valium came out or diazepam, and they're probably safer than barbiturates. I agree they are, but that's not what people do. They, they take them because they think they need them, and then they take the opioids, and if they drink a little, it's a potentially lethal combination. But they don't believe it. They got it under control. Benzodiazepines sit in the background. They tend to have longer half-lives, or they stick around in you. And so when you see overdoses in those autopsy reports, it's usually got some benzos in there, and it isn't always the opioids. But I agree with number 11. I just do everything I can to get people off their benzos. They are not good for people. 12. Providers should offer a range of evidence-based treatment, usually medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine or methadone in combination with behavioral therapies for patients with opioid use disorder. I'm not going to comment on that right now. We're going to catch that later. I'm going to do a whole podcast on buprenorphine or Suboxone or Subutex. Those are some of the other uh, non-generic names. Buprenorphine is fantastic. Buprenorphine saves lives. Methadone treatment centers, they're probably going to become more historic over time here. But they're important. They're important. They're just hard to get access to, and they're expensive. But buprenorphine is a fantastic drug. But what are they talking about here? Uh, Offer or arrange evidence-based treatment for patients with opioid use disorder. Tell us what your evidence-based treatment is, and what do I arrange if it's not in my community? And where do I send somebody with an opioid use disorder, and what is an opioid use disorder? Some question marks there. Okay, so I I briefly went through these 12 to get some thoughts going. Now, these are my opinions— and it's based on a lot of experience. I want providers at basically all level to understand that it is my firm belief that first and foremost, we treat patients as individuals. We also do not practice in fear. Don't practice in fear and don't practice in a climate that believes in retaliation, that somebody around the corner is going to launch that arrow, that arrow is in the air and it's going to hit that big bullseye on your back. You can't practice medicine that way. You have to take best evidence, best information, your skill, your experience. You have to apply it to what you see before you as an individual patient. And a lot of these, quote, shoulds, that's air quotes, and other parts of this guideline are not necessarily scientifically uh, factual. I just don't want those providers in the community to necessarily worry about these guidelines. They are somewhat problematic at some stage, but we're going to work through this. And this is our primer for talking about opioids and stepping up our game a little bit. But the CDC guidelines are here. They're in our face, and we are going to have to pretty much just kind of accept them as CDC is a very credible organization. We do understand that there's an opioid epidemic, 19,000 people a year dying from opioid overdoses, and many, many more hospital admissions and ER visits, et cetera. So in an upcoming podcast, we're going to talk about practical application of these opioid and CDC guidelines. I think that's the best thing to do. We'll talk about evidence-based medicine through the guidelines, why we use them. We're going to talk about the risk reduction strategies and the world according to me. Speaking of The World According to Me, that's a podcast I do, and I put some of the podcasts up here from The World According to Me, such as Dogs Eat Money. Kind of fun. Just It just let's all just kind of lighten up a little bit and get through life and enjoy it. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's what we're trying to do is increase quality of life. I've also started a podcast with Judy Holmes, who's an, an employee law attorney. And for providers out there, just people that are interested, it's called Office University. It's about the uh, risks in an office practice and how to somehow mitigate those risks through good office practices. It might be worth your while checking that out. Thanks for being on the podcast here. I really am trying not to rant, (laughs) but let's not practice in fear, underscored. Leave a review at iTunes, please. That really helps us rank, and let me know what you think of this. I read every one of those that come through, and once again, have a great day.